Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So, take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to another episode of Why Would You Tell Me That With Me, Neil Delamere and him, Dave Moore. If you haven't listened to the show by now, well, what is wrong with you? But... Also, Every- welcome, welcome, welcome. Say that, Neil. They're first-time listeners. Be nice okay, to them. Sorry, welcome. Thank you very much for discovering our brand new podcast. There's 30 <laughs> other episodes. Get off your arse and download those. Um, if you haven't listened before, I or my friend Dave Moore bring something interesting to the table. Uh, it just has to justify, why would you tell me that? It could be put any subject under the sun. It just has to intrigue both of us. We are proudly part of the ACAST Creator Network. It is Dave's turn this week. If you want to get in touch with us, we're at Neil Delamere Comedy on Instagram or at Dave Today FM on Instagram as well. And we're doing a live show very, very soon. Where are we doing yeah. it today? Smock yeah. Alley? Smock Alley Theatre in Dublin on the 4th of April, 2023. Obviously, if this is the first time you listen to the podcast and it's 2026, you've missed the live show. Apologies. Uh, but I'm sure the next one is in like the Madison Square Gardens, the one that's coming up in 2026. Yet, well, well, actually, we're just beaming it into the, the chip that Bill Gates put in the brain from the vaccine. So <laughs> it's fine. We don't have to go fine. anywhere, Jeff. Yeah, it's 2026. You just enjoy it all. But no, honestly, we would love you to come along and see us live in Dublin, in Ireland, in the Smock Alley Theatre on the 4th of April. Tickets available uh, on Smock Alley's website, in our link trees, which you'll find link in our bio on our Instagrams, as Neil told you. So just go and find it wherever you want to find. Why would you tell me that? You'll find the link to the tickets. They're in the show notes of this episode. Clickety-click, go get your tickets, and we'll see you on the 4th of April. So, it is your turn to wow me with your research and just in the nether regions of the internet sourcing a guest for us. What yeah. have you got? Well, it's a, this weekend coming is, a, is an important weekend. Obviously, you know, if you're listening to it this week, when this episode comes out, it's an important weekend. If you listen to this again in a few months or weeks or years or whatever, it's a long time away. But this weekend coming is the Oscars. Yes. And there's a lot of Irish interest in the Oscars. We're proud Irishmen. And obviously the Banshees, Vin Sheeran has done well. And Colleen Kuhn, there's short films in there. There's always people, there's there's like Richard Bainham, who's a visual effects uh, artist, and he's been nominated for Avatar The Way of Water. Lots of Irish interest. However, I thought it was important this week to kind of mark the time of the year. And Neil, I want to tell you about a fella called Cedric Gibbons. And Cedric Gibbons was one of the founding members of the the Academy of Motion Pictures, Arts and Sciences, I believe is the yeah. full title of the Academy. One of the founding members of that. He was nominated 39 times for an Oscar. He won 11 of them. If you think about Irish Oscar winners, our biggest multiple winner is Daniel Day-Lewis, who's got three Oscars. Like, three phenomenal. 
I know he's not technically Irish, but we claim him. So get over yourselves. Daniel Day-Lewis, three. This man, 11. And why am I saying telling you that in the same sentence as Daniel Day-Lewis? Because he's Irish. Yes. And he designed the Oscars statue. Cedric Gibbons, our own Cedric Gibbons, I say, as if I hadn't just heard that name yeah. 45 seconds ago. <laughs> he designed the actual statuette. Designed the statuette and then went on to have the most stellar career. Let's not ruin it all now. Let's okay. save it for part two. We will explore his intriguing life with Catherine Healy, who's a historian in residence at EPIC, which is the Irish Emigration Museum uh, on CHQ, Custom House Key in Dublin. If you're ever in Dublin, please go and visit it. It's absolutely amazing. But Catherine's going to tell us all about him in part two. But in part one, Neil, I wanted to do two things. I want to tell you about something record-breaking and then something amazing. Two separate stories. Right? Number one is the world's tallest statue. So obviously the statuette of the Oscar you know, about 13 inches, just over a foot tall. But I want to tell you about a statue <laughs> that is absolutely enormous. It took 57 months to build, and it right. took 4,000 people to build it. And it is, as you well know, it's amazing you didn't have a statue before, Vallabhai Patel. Oh, Vallabhai Patel? Oh, yeah. Now, as far as I remember, he was in the same bridge club as Cedric Gibbons. <laughs> they were very tight. Very and um, there's a whole uh, uh, statue arms race, and Patel was the winner. 57 no. months. Let me tell you about Vallabhai Patel. Okay, Vallabhai Patel was nicknamed the Iron Man of India, and not because he has a giant metal statue made out of him, um, because he is the fella who, when the British left India in the 40s, yeah. He managed to unite all and count them 562 states in India and form a government. He's the fellow who did it, right? I mean, that's quite impressive. That is quite impressive. What I love about this story is, so he he was around then in the 40s and, and um, 50s and doing all his important work then. They decided to put up a statue of him very recently and they decided to include the population, right? So what they said was, he's a man of the people. Mm. Can we ask the farmers of this country, can we ask you for your scrap iron? So whatever you have lying around, your disused machinery, that you no longer functions or whatever, can you send it to us? 100 million farmers. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I mean, I can, see, I can see where the problem is here. It is the most <laughs> populous country in the world and it's just beaten China in terms of the records. You don't ask any cohort for, to send in their scrap metal. If you asked people who were 5 foot 1.6 and you asked them for the right-hand aerial of their <laughs> television set, you're still going to get a shitload of stuff. Yeah. There's yeah. a lot of people. And there is a lot of people. So 100 million farmers sent in their, their scrap iron. They decided to build a 183-meter tall statue. 183 oh meters yeah. to represent the 183 seats in the legislature that he helped to found, right, Valaboy? So this is why they settled on this number. But, like, think about it for a second. Like, 183 meters of a statue. It's not a monument. It's not an apartment block. You know, it's not a skyscraper. It's a statue. That must be like Mecca to pigeons. 
I mean, pigeons must like, that must be like a cruise when you retire as a pigeon. And the one thing you want to go to see is, sh- is surely you want you sh- shitting on a statue that big. <laughs> Will they even be able to fly 182 meters in the sky? I doubt it. I How far did you get, Jerry? It. I got to his belt buckle. Go again tomorrow. <laughs> now, interestingly, right, there's loads of stuff about this, loads of stats and numbers, which we'll get into in a second. But what I think is amazing about the fact that it's a statue is if you think about large monuments, large monuments need to be thick at the base mm. and narrow at the top. So mm. you think of the Burj Al Khalifi, the tallest building in the world, obviously starts you know wide and narrows as it gets taller. The Empire State Building, like these big, huge structures need to do that. And there, there's actually a, a kind of a ratio that needs to be adhered to so that they can do that. However, think about the shape of a human and think about the shape of a human in clothes because this guy, his statue, he's clothed, little ankles, feet, little ankles, yeah. Yeah. And then it goes out. So it actually defies the logic that's used to keep giant monuments standing still and standing proud and not in any way threatened by everything that can happen. But they managed to do it. There are ways in which they can do this. Is he standing? Like, yes. I mean, they haven't put him in a bizarre kind of squat to, no. to make... The ratios work. No. He is standing kind of proud, like as befits the founding father or our founding father of the nation. Absolutely. He's literally just standing there. He's 183 meters tall. He's on the banks of a river and looking down at a dam, which again, he he led the campaign for this dam and it changed the, the obviously the topography of the area, but also the lifestyle of the people in the area. It is in a strange enough place in that it's 200 kilometers from the nearest city in a densely forested place. Like, it's not like this is, you know, as I said, Statue of Liberty, you know, beside Manhattan, you get a little ferry out to it. Like, this is miles away from anything, but it's a very it's a very important region to him. This is where he was from, where he grew up, and okay. where they felt like they should put this statue. Um in order for the statue to be built, and then in order for it to be the tourist destination it has now become, they also had to install a four-lane road, get into <laughs> it, which didn't exist before because it was in the middle of a forest. They put in a food court. They put in a 52-room, three-star hotel and a museum. I assume you can see that statue from a long way off if you're driving down the four-lane road. Yes. At some point, you'd have to line up the bonnet of your car and pretend you had uh, a roller, <laughs> wouldn't you? You'd have yeah. to pretend that you had a Rolls Royce, <laughs> but made in India with the, with Patel down and, the end of the and bonnet. And it was really slow. It had come loose and was really slowly getting closer <laughs> getting to bigger. your windscreen. Yeah. Yeah. I'm driving slower than you might imagine. This is such a thrill. <laughs> Is it made of scrap metal? It's not no. necessarily metal. It's kind of the even down. even the don- donations of a hundred million farmers was only enough for the foundations. Oh my good lord! What's the rest of it made out of? So what they did was right. This is fascinating. They built the same kind of internal concrete structures that you would see in huge skyscrapers. They built two of them. And they mm. put lift shafts in them because you can go up this thing and look around. It's amazing. You can go up inside him. And actually, there's little hidden viewing platforms in his ribs. So you're kind of up there and you can look across the beautiful area. You can go up his legs. Up his legs, yeah. Like a blood clot. Yeah. 
I'd never thought of that. I really hope that's not how he died. I think, oh, yeah. It wouldn't be amazing, though, if you could go up from a lift in his legs and as you got to his brain, his eyes just kind of shorted out. No, that would be absolutely terrifying. But they built these two, these huge, this huge jewel concrete structure, like I suppose a, a small letter N, you know, the way you would you would draw that or whatever. And then what they did was they, from that, they cantilevered out a framework and then on that, they hung bronze uh, plates. And each of the plates was numbered and had to go on in a certain sequence to create the statue and his flowing robes and his arms and his face and everything. So they obviously had to number it so that they didn't get it wrong. The way in which they they actually got the thing was, was amazing, the way they made it. So they got a guy called Ramvi Suta, and he was the guy chosen to design the, the statue. So he built a three-foot statue, then an 18-foot statue, and then a 30-foot statue. Is he Russian? (laughs) No, he wasn't building a giant Matryoshka. (laughs) But what he did then was, once the 30-foot one was built, they 3D scanned that and then sent that to a Chinese company who then built the copper exoskeleton of plates. They went... This is how we'll do it. And they shipped them in from China down the four-lane road that they built to get them there. It took 4,000 workers, 57 months to build it. They had It was on a hill, so it's raised above the river, but it was on a 70-meter 70, 70 tall hill, and that was too tall. So they flattened the hill down to 50 meters, took 15 meters of earth off the hill to put in the, the, the platform. Uh, and that's what it's based on. And then you can see it from about seven kilometers away. So you were saying about when you're driving up in your car, like this thing is like visible from seven kilometers away, five miles almost away. How, lo- how long has it been in, in situ? Do we know? Not long at all. But in its first month that it was open, it had as many visitors as the Statue of Liberty really? in the same period of time. In yeah. the same period of time. So yeah. it's already become an Indian icon. Yeah. A destination. Of an Indian icon. Yeah, exactly. Yes, yes, yeah. And the fact that there's a, ho- there's a hotel there, that there's... Food courts, a museum. You can obviously buy merchandise. It is, it, it is just awe-inspiring to see how. But it's been there for a couple of years at this stage, right? Yeah. Definitely. So by this stage, can we rule out like the, the Greek lads inside it are dead? <laughs> it's the long game. It's a long game. <laughs> they're they're really waiting. They're in his kneecap <laughs> and they're waiting this out. Until, They'll come uh, out eventually. Yeah. Okay. Wow, that's amazing. It is. And I, I would highly recommend that you go and look it up because it is, it's easy for me to explain it, I suppose, and give you all these stats. But if you actually see it in situ, you'll kind of get a scale of how big it is. Like, I saw one comment on one of the videos I was watching about it where somebody said, I'm six foot seven. Yeah. And I, I stood at the back of the foot of the statue and I wasn't even above, if you can imagine this, I wasn't even above the curve of the back of his heel. So, like, you know the way when you stand on the ground, like, yeah. your, your foot is flat on the ground, and then it eventually curves up out of the way and goes up here. He wasn't even that little bit of curve off the ground. <laughs> he was six foot seven. I'm looking, I'm looking up the, the statue. I'm looking it up now. I want to see the picture of it. Go on, Valabai Patel. Oh, yeah. And he's got, and he's got the flowing kind of robes. Yeah. And he's, I can see some scaffolding there as well. 
it's very impressive. Yeah, well, you do go up and, and visit it as a tourist. When you look out, you're looking across that river, as I said, you can see the dam, but then also there's acres and acres of manicured gardens that you're looking at. So it's a beautiful place to go and visit. And the Statue of Liberty is only 93 metres. This oh, yeah, is twice, twice the height. height. Yeah. And the Christ the Redeemer, which if you had asked me what was the biggest that statue, certainly it would be up there. 38 metres. Yeah. Compared to the Statue of Liberty, even. So this thing is like six times the size of Christ the Redeemer. Oh, my God. Yeah. It's time for Christ the Redeemer to put his hands in at this point, isn't it? <laughs> it's just, <laughs> I mean, that's, that is the kind of a pose of somebody who should be more than 38 metres tall. So, <laughs> Jesus, if you're listening to this, maybe... Uh, <laughs> Come down and grant a miracle. A little bit more humility, that's all. Yeah. Um, the other thing I want to tell you about now is about Leslie Patterson. You know Leslie, don't you? Leslie you knew, Patterson. You knew Patel. Was she also in the Bridge Club? <laughs> yes, she was with Cedric Gibbons. <laughs> no, Leslie Patterson is a 42-year-old triathlete from Scotland. Okay. Obviously, I'm talking about her now in this episode because it makes perfect sense. Come with me on a little bit of a journey, okay? Okay. She's no ordinary triathlete, okay? She's a five-time world champion. She played rugby in school as a kid. I'm talking about under nines, under tens, under elevens. And she played with the boys, the only girl in a 250-strong boys club. And gradually, as the boys went through puberty and got older and bigger, it was just decided between her and the coaches and her family, look, you can't play rugby anymore. It's just they're 14-year-old men. It's just not going to be good for you. So her dad introduced her to running, and she found that she loved triathlons. Now, she had been very successful at rugby, had won, like, Scottish school championships and all. She was brilliant. But she took to running, like I don't know what the analogy is of took to running, took to water, you know, to water greyhound to sprinting yeah uh kenyan to marathons i don't know like whatever the whatever the phrase would be she was very good at it started at 14 by 16 she was representing scotland internationally in triathlons okay she always struggled with the swimming is the only problem and as a result when it came to like the world's you know championships and competing as the best in the world she would struggle so much in the pool in the swim that she couldn't make up no matter how good she was at the running and no matter how good she was at the cycling, she couldn't make up the ground that she lost. And then she failed to qualify for the Commonwealth Games in 2002 because of her swim and went, do you know what? I'm just going to quit. So she moved to California with her husband who had found work out there as a sports nutritionist in university and said, nah, I'm not going to do it. So five years of not competing, she heard about something called Xterra. And Xterra is effectively a triathlon, but it's muddy. So it's a okay. muddy cycle, a muddy swim, a muddy run. It's all whatever. And she said, oh, that sounds like, do you know what? If anything, it'll be a bit of fun. I'll give it a go. So she borrowed a mate's mountain bike. Yeah. She went and did her, her, her first race in 2007. Didn't like the swim and bit. Didn't do very well. Caught up a bit on the bike. Did very well on the run. And came ninth in her first ever race after five years of not doing it. Haven't done nothing for five nothing years. Nothing for five years, right? Okay. Then in 08, she came second. And in 09, she became the world champion of Xterra racing. Okay. So then in 2011, Lance Armstrong, who wasn't yet, <laughs> you didn't know the things about him that we know now. Yeah. In 2011, he was taking part in an Xterra race. So it was loads of publicity. She ran the running part of the Xterra race 10 minutes faster than prime lance armstrong 
And prime Lance Armstrong was prime Lance Armstrong plus, 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 plus. <laughs> exactly. So she was just smashing this type of race. Gold again in 2012. Then the poor woman got Lyme disease. Okay. It's a, yeah. It's a bacterial disease, really debilitating. Yeah, and usually she, from a tick and on deer. Yes, exactly. A tick. Yeah. She couldn't race then all of the rest of 2012, all of 2013, all of 2014, all of 2015, right? Now, I know, Neil, you're now sitting here going, Dave's lost his mind. This is supposed to be something about statues or Oscars. Why is he telling me about Lady I was, Patterson? I was thinking that. Yeah. The reason I'm telling you this is because Leslie Patterson, yeah. this person yeah. that we're talking about, is a five-time world champion triathlete, is nominated this year for an Oscar for Best Adapted Screenplay for All Quiet on the Western Front. Okay, that's not acceptable. That is unacceptable. You, listen, stay in your lane. You've already picked three lanes, one of which is wet, one of which is muddy, and one of which is ground. You do not get to be this good at three different things. Rugby, triathlon, and can write as well. Yeah. Now, listen to this story, though. This is where it gets amazing. Can I just say one thing before we go on? You can say as you want. Triathlons. So, what are the four stages of a triathlon? This is what they said the fourth stage is. The four stages. Yeah. So you got swimming, got you got Cycling, the bike, and you got the marathon running. Right. Yeah. So it's transitions. Transitions are the one of the most important things. Yes. And I know two fellas and one guy beat the other guy in the swim time, in the bike time, and on the run time, and the other guy still beat him. Because his transitions because he, were quicker. So basically, imagine you train hours and hours a week and your mate is better at undressing because that's <laughs> what it is yes stripper johnny there is better at this event than you because he can get his velcro cacks off quicker than you can <laughs> i just think it's an amazing thing about the triathlon. it is so go on back to the no, all quiet no, 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 I'm, front. I'm, this crazy thing is i'm not leaving triathlons i'm not oh, this, okay. this is where it goes crazy right so she was a dancer, uh, apart from everything else she was doing. She, of as course a kid. she was. Yeah. She appeared in a David Gray video for the song Alibi. Did you know that? No, you didn't. She also then tried acting. She said herself, I was rubbish, but she did study drama as her undergraduate degree and theater as her master's degree, which she got in San Diego State University. And then there was the book, All Quiet on the Western Front. She just loves this book. If you don't know, it's a book about World War One. Uh, it's in German. It was written in German, first of all, and it's about the horrors of war. It's not a celebration in any stretch of the imagination. And she always loved the book. And in 2006, she took a punt and bought the rights to make a movie of All Quiet in the Western Front. Like, that's unbelievable, considering that book has been around and is famous for... And there was a movie made in 1930. A, a million years, yeah. And, yeah. and people would know the original film. Yeah. So she decided to buy it in 2006. Now, here's the thing when you buy, when you option a book, turn it into a movie, you have to pay every year a certain amount of money, depending on what the, the estate of the book, you know, demands. In this okay. case, it was $10,000. So for year one, you're kind of going, 10 grand, I can make a movie. You can make me a millionaire. This will be fine. But then year two rolls around, you haven't quite made the movie yet. They go, knock, knock, knock. We need our money. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm there to get the finance together. Knock, knock, knock. It's year three. Give me money. So this went on, went on, went on, went on. This is 2006. And what she used to do was she used to use the winnings from her triathlons. She would exclusively kind of save that money and go, that's going to pay for the book rights. And anyway, I'll go on at my job and do whatever. My husband has a job, whatever. So this kept going and going and going. When she couldn't race because of Lyme disease, she didn't obviously have 
the wherewithal to earn this extra money to keep the book going. So there was a period where she was about to lose the rights to the book in 2016, having paid it for 10 years. And she was like, oh, what am I going to do? Like, I've come this far and I'm so, every time I was like, like in 2012, Daniel Radcliffe, Harry Potter was going to be in the movie. Like people robbed them. There was there was stories of lads went to jail for financial corruption involved around this movie script before it was even a movie. It was so much going on with this. But in 2016, she said, OK, what am I going to do? And she went, so got a notification or email, Xterra race, Costa Rica. She's like, ah, oh, well, look, I'm still in bits. Lyme disease, like she couldn't, she's running, but she's running in pain. Like it's not, it, Lyme disease hasn't left her. And she goes, but I need the $10,000. The prize money is $10,000. I'm just going to do it and see if I can win. And her husband's like, I don't know. Is this really the right thing to do? She's like, well, it's either that or I lose the rights of the book because we don't have $10,000 to pay it. It's going to lapse if we don't do it. So she went to Costa Rica. She put in some training. She's working through, she's taking painkillers because the pain's so bad. And the day before the race, she falls off her bike in Costa Rica and breaks her shoulder. Oh, God. Okay. Now, I know this is a happy ending, so at that point, this is not looking great. No. And her husband says to her, look, you've tried. You've come this far. We, we have to leave this. And she went, yeah, you're right. I can't, I can't swim with one arm. And then he goes, wait a minute. You say swim one arm. She goes, he goes, you practice that in the pool. She's like, oh, yeah, it's, it's a triathlon training regime is you use one arm and you swim lengths and lengths and then you use the other arm and you swim and you don't use two arms because it obviously strengthens different sides of your body whatever but you do it yeah you know um wait a minute thing. the swim is on a circular course here <laughs> wait a minute no he said to her you are so good on the one arm swim training you can do this she's like i'll be so far behind he's like you can do this and she goes i need the ten thousand dollars Hops into the sea in Costa Rica, swims one-armed, and is 12 minutes behind the last swimmer. Right. 12 minutes. Okay. So she hops on. She hops. She does her transition quite well. She hops on the bike, and she finishes the bike race in second position. And then that's not even her strongest suit because her strongest suit has always been running. She goes, she runs, she overtakes and she wins the entire thing, gets her 10 grand, keeps the rights to All Quiet on the Western oh. Front. <laughs> that, that's when it all gets picked up because Parasite wins the movie in 2019 of best, best thing. It's a foreign language movie. 1917 comes along and all of a sudden there's a grow for World War One movies. All of this mm. comes together. She's kept the rights to the thing. Boom. The movie gets made. In German, with a German director, the way she always wanted to make the movie and all, the one of the reasons she never got the finance was because she wanted to make it in German. And everyone's like, no, 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 no. Eventually gets it. 14 BAFTA nominations, nine oh Oscar nominations. God. And she's already won the BAFTA. And this weekend, she's up for the chance to win the Oscar to the movie that she saved because she ran and swam and cycled in Costa Rica. Okay, that is unbelievable as a story. I think we can all... Uh, be secretly relieved that somebody who got Lyme's disease didn't write Parasite. I think we all know that. <laughs> but the idea that you actually leave 12 minutes behind in a world-class field, if there's 10 grand on yep. the line, and how how annoyed would you be if you had, you know, you were in the full of your head, you were feeling good, and she cycles up beside <laughs> you, right? She hasn't changed gear because her right hand's bollocksed, right? <laughs> So she's on a fixie, essentially, for however many kilometers. <laughs> and then she just runs by you. Uh, 
Oh my god, what a woman! What a woman! Leslie Patterson is her name. Keep an eye out for. Look, I don't know whether she'll win the Oscar, you know, or how many this movie will win. But next time you hear about her or watch the movie or read the book. Just think about her amazing journey. And I mean, she's clearly sold her soul to the devil, though. There's no <laughs> way that there's not a Faustian pact there if she's that talented, that many things. I think I'd take it, to be honest with you. If the deal was offered, I'd be straight in there going, you got it, Satan. Whatever oh, yeah. you need, buddy. Oh, yeah. Beelzebub doesn't want any of the shit that we're selling. I no, mean, we, no, we all know not. we would get into the old uh, bed with Lucifer. Lucifer <laughs> and Lovejoy. Okay, I I'm I didn't know who I was up for in the Oscars, apart from the Irish people, but I'm up for Now you Patterson. do. Yeah. Okay, well, look, that's part one in part two we're going to be joined by Catherine Healy who is the historian in residence in Epic Museum and she's going to tell us all about the Irishman who is responsible for the Oscars in so many ways including designing the Oscar statue itself we'll talk to her in a second in part two say hello to a new era of mental health care Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support 100% online you'll experience the all-new Cerebral Way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Okay, welcome back to part two of Why Would You Tell Me That? And today we are talking to Catherine Healy, who is the historian in residence at the Epic Museum in CHQ in uh, Dublin, Ireland. Highly recommend you pay a visit to it if you're ever in Dublin. Uh, but Catherine, first of all, welcome along. And second of all, let's talk Cedric Gibbons. <laughs> let's. Delighted to be here. Thanks for having me. 
Yeah, no worries. I'm intrigued to learn more about it myself. I've done some research when I heard about his story. I couldn't believe it, but I've done some research, but I want to get some more insights from you. But for Neil and for anyone else listening, let's go back to the beginning because we're claiming Cedric Gibbons as an Irishman, but he was born here in Dublin, right? Well, that is uh, what is generally claimed to be the case. Um, And some of the MGM promo material um, repeats that claim. But his original birth certificate does have Brooklyn down as uh, the place of birth. So. we won't believe that. <laughs> of course, uh, we can we can still claim him, maybe not as strongly, but um, yeah, his he got his Irishness, I suppose, primarily through his dad's side. Um, his dad was born to, to Irish parents in Liverpool, and yeah, came from from working class Irish American stock. So his his family moved to Manhattan, right? When he was he was young, very young when he moved there. Yeah, so his dad was born in um, in Liverpool in the 1860s and um, would have moved over to the States when he was very young. Um, and Cedric's granddad was an Irish builder. He would have worked on the construction of the St. Patrick's Cathedral in Manhattan. Wow. And then Cedric's dad himself went into construction and um, eventually opened up his own business, which is where Cedric would have gotten his first um, experience at a, a technical drawing. Okay, so because this, this, of course, is going to inform the conversation we're going to have in a while is what career he followed and all. But Neil had a question there. No, I'm just saying Irish enough to have played for us in the 1990s. That's oh. a, let's just say that. <laughs> that, that, that that's <laughs> Irish enough for us. Irish enough for Jack is. Charlton. So he gets this background in technical drawing from there then. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and I mean, New York at the time, there you have massive construction projects going on and he talks about being amazed at seeing these structures sprout up from uh, from the ground as he moved around the city. And then he uh, he studied um, at the Art Students League of um, New York. So he would have gotten f- some formal training there as well. Okay, so he's, he's surrounded by architecture, as in, you know, his, his, what his father's doing, technical drawing. He's seeing these buildings sprout up in in America in the 20s in Manhattan and and all that. So he takes all of that. And when does he join MGM, Metro-Golden-Mare as we know it? When when does he join MGM? Yeah, that that comes a little bit further down the line. He joined um, Golden Pictures in 1918. That's where he finally started to design his own sets. That company then merges uh, with two others to form MGM in 1924. And I suppose he had made enough of a mark at that point to be um, kept on a lot of stuff. And the three companies have been let go okay. and or braided, but um, he was kept on and he became head of the new um, MGM art department, which is where he made until the 50s. And, and some of the stuff I, I read about that, I understand that being the head of the art department is a massive uh, position within particularly a movie studio in the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s kind of thing. I'm, I'm presuming even now today, but, but back then it would have been, even if you didn't work on a film personally hands-on, because you were the head of the art department, you'd get a credit and it would be the team beneath you would be working on this film, that film, whatever, but they'd all be funneling their progress through you for approval and all that kind of stuff. That's exactly right. Yeah. I mean, it was the equivalent of running his own business. Um, you know, he would have had anything from between 50 to 80 people working um, under him by the 1930s. And that would arrange from architects to, you know, carpenters, painters, um, they even made their own furniture for sets at the MGM lot. So yeah, I mean, my, just to give you a sense of the scale of the operation, and um, there would have been upwards of fifty films coming out of the MGM studios a year um, from the nineteen thirties, and each of those films would have required at least a dozen, if not several dozen sets. So there are multiple productions going on at any given time. 
there's a great New York Times article from the 1930s that describes Gibbons sitting like this sort of military commander on um, the the spacious second floor of the executive MGM building um, and he has a subordinates kind of coming in, streaming in and out all day long as he as he orders them about. So he was very much managing people, managing budgets, and then acting as a liaison between the variety of arch- artists and architects that were under his charge and um, the, the directors and producers who joined MGM. So do we know some of the famous films off the top of your head that he was responsible for and and the the general look of like would people know them if you named them now oh yes yeah. <laughs> <laughs> thank you div <laughs> i mean there there are over uh, 1500 films that have been credited to him so it can be difficult to distinguish what exactly he had a direct role in and um what ones he he merely approved at the at the end stage but in terms of those that won the most awards, uh, 11 Oscars to, to Gibbons' name, the second most successful um, Oscar winner in, in film history. But um, Pride and Prejudice would be one of the better known ones from the, from 1940, starring Laurence Olivier. He actually said that the two films he was proudest of didn't get him uh, any Oscars, Marie Antoinette and um, Romeo and Juliet. And Wizard of Oz, I suppose. Yeah, he didn't um, win for Wizard of Oz. I can't believe that the art department for Wizard of Oz didn't win the Oscar that year, but they didn't in 1939. No, wrong, he- wrong shade of yellow on the on the brick road, Dave. It's, just, <laughs> it's those fine attention to details. If Dermot Bannon had done it, he would have just knocked through. <laughs> he, would, he would have done a pagoda. What is he always doing? A pagoda or something like that. <laughs> pergola. A pergola. And a glass wall, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. But yeah, so I mean, like, th- there are so many ma- movies, as you said, but to be nominated 39 times and win 11 of them, like whatever position you may have as a figurehead, like your work still has to be of a level, of a standard that is doing better than everyone else's. So, I mean, he was obviously phenomenal at his job. Some of the other things, that, like, there's interesting personal life, because like, I know the kind of the elephant in the room is the Oscar statuette, and we'll, we'll get to that, I promise, Neil, I promise. But the interesting person in life, like he married Dolores Del Rio, who was, an, uh, was she an actress or was she already married to an actress or something like that? But She would have been well known as an actress, yeah. Yeah, and then she had an affair with Orson Welles and they got divorced and then he married someone else. But I, And I don't know if this is true or not, and this is the kind of thing maybe you do know, maybe you don't know, uh, Catherine, but his someone, maybe his second cousin, someone in his family who shares the name Gibbons was a guy called Frederick Royal Gibbons and he worked at MGM as a music composer, and he's the dad of Billy Gibbons, who's in ZZ Top, Neil. <laughs> That's my favorite thing about Cedric Gibbons, is his second cousin was ZZ Top's Billy's dad. But you know something, there's a reason why you're not working on who do you think you are. You would spill the beans <laughs> immediately. There'd be no sort of build up with the family no. tree. You'd run in and go, guess who it is? It's ZZ Top. <laughs> you just come in playing the guitar, playing his easy Top song, going, is this, this guy? Yeah. The child came, the child was delivered. They grabbed his beard. The child had a beard <laughs> seven inches long, and that's how the midwife pulled him out. And you know my favorite thing, sorry, I've got to throw a ZZ Top fact in for you. The three members is easy top. Two yeah. guys with long hair and long beards, and one guy yeah. with no beard. His yeah. name is John Beard. <laughs> <laughs> okay, right. This is also Wait, why I'm, this is why I'm not the historian in residence at Epic, and that's why Catherine's here. <laughs> okay, can then we talk about the actual <laughs> seminal, not seminal work of his career, but what you Man, introduced him as? Yeah, it is. 
the Oscar statue or statuette, I mean, were other people asked to do it? Was he the first person approached? Did he come upon this design immediately or did he have several different prototypes, Catherine? What way did it work? Yeah, so, I mean, he was one of the founding members of the Academy um, in 1927. Awards weren't really a thing back then, so they wouldn't have really had a, you know, a model or prototype to work from. I believe initially the plan was to have some sort of meddler or cup designed um, when the idea came to have an, a proper award ceremony. Yeah, like a plaque or a scroll or a medal or a cup. Uh, they, did, they didn't know what to give yeah. them. Like, you know, which is fair enough. I mean, think about it. When you're sitting there going, we're going to reward the best in our in our industry, but what do we give them? I mean, yeah, like, yeah. It would have been know, a letdown, I feel, being presented with, with a cup. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, probably true. Gibbons, of course, ever the perfectionist, had grander plans. And so he sketched out this design of the knight uh, with the with the sword and standing. The only difference from the the present Oscar statue, the only difference between that and his own design is that he had the knight standing in front of the reel instead. So um, it has the de- the design hasn't changed very much. We should explain to, in case anyone isn't aware, because I think you have to look at the statue in detail to to know the things you're talking about, Catherine. But so as you said, it's actually a knight, like a crusader knight, almost, isn't it? Like with, standing with a huge sword in front of him, but he's standing on a reel of film with five holes in it and i can't remember what the five represented five kind of categories of movie making didn't they yeah that's right yeah the the five original branches of the academy so they were actors directors producers writers and technicians and okay who gibbons himself would have been within the technician category yeah. Um, and then, yeah, the sword is meant to symbolize the protection. And obviously, the, the categories have, have jumped, you know, there's like thousands of them now. But it was, at the time, the five were the five kind of key areas that you could reward somebody and award somebody a prize in. Was it always going to be in gold or do we know about that? And also, it's not modeled on anybody in particular, is it? Is it just a kind of a generic figurine? Yeah, it, it's been said that it was modeled on um, a young Mexican actor. That notion has been disputed. The Academy said that it was a... Uh, he was given his own vision, but yeah, it was. Uh, there's a long, uh, there's a long history in terms of the material that's that's been used during Second World War during shortages that had to be made from cheaper material. Plaster, I think, was it? Yeah, yeah. And didn't didn't they offer anyone who won one that was plaster? They offered them when when the material when the war was over, the materials came back. Didn't they offer them? Said, look, you can come back and exchange it if you want. <laughs> Get an upgrade, yeah, yeah. Because it wouldn't last in the same way that a yeah yeah. What they do Neil, is they make it out of solid bronze and then it's it's plated in twenty four karat gold and it's heavy. This thing is eight and a half pounds and it's about thirteen inches tall. It's like it's a foot tall. Like it's a it's a big heavy award. And you actually, if you watch Oscars acceptance speeches you'll often yeah. find people kind of inadvertently blurt out oh it's it's heavier than i thought it would be or whatever you know what i mean like if they haven't touched one before so eight and a half pounds to paraphrase is the snapper it's a small turkey but it's a big statue isn't it <laughs> yeah it's true <laughs> a solid and guilty do, birth weight and do we know um obviously gold prices fluctuate do we know how much an oscar statue is just if it wasn't if it wasn't an oscar statue div I mean, that's a very specific question. Well, I you probably do know the answer, don't no, you? No, no, you do. I do know the answer. And I'll tell you why. Because you can buy someone's Oscar and then the value on that Oscar is based on who the person is. So I think Steven Spielberg bought uh, Catherine Hepburn or Betty Dave. Someone bought some actress from the 40s or 50s. He bought it and paid like half a million dollars for it, right? So right. expensive. But now there's a, in 2015 or 16, I think it was, the Academy put a law in that said, 
if anyone's selling their Oscar, they have to sell it back to the Oscars for one dollar. I mean, there, so it's just a token payment, basically. But it, now, so now every Oscar is only worth a dollar. Yeah, but I mean, <laughs> that's the, you know. So if you are in a position where you're in such straitened circumstances as you, as you have to sell your Oscar, like you're not going to listen to the Academy going, "Oh, you had to sell it back for us." Really? I think yeah. you're finding going on the Antiques Roadshow. Go fuck yourself. <laughs> <laughs> Something like that, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, but you'll be going straight into the fair in Smithfield. <laughs> or eBay, eBay to... at least. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. So, Cedric, so then what about the rest of his career? I mean, obviously, he, he won all these Oscars, but, I mean, he was just, as you said, producing films at such a huge rate in that period where he was in MGM. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I suppose he was the first set designer to have his own really distinctive set style, Um so I think it's important that he be acknowledged, you know, if you watch an MGM film from that period, so much of what you see in terms of the aesthetic were a result um, of his own vision. And he was very much a perfectionist. I can imagine he was a difficult man to to work with. Um, he had a famously very difficult relationship with uh, this director called Vincenti Minnelli, who, was, uh, who joined MGM in the 1940s with this vague title of, of dance director but he was supposedly meant to be coming in under Gibbons' purview and uh, Gibbons writes uh, a very sternly worded memo to one of uh, the higher-ups at MGM. Uh, he misspelled Minnelli's name. We don't know if that was on purpose or not. Um, That's a power move for sure. <laughs> yeah. yeah, That he he absolutely refused um, to work with, with anyone in terms of design unless uh, the man was brought to him as a member of his own department um, and uh, uh, there, there's a, a historian, David Gerstner, who's gone through the MGM archives as well and found uh, this template letter that Gibbons' office would send out to people who'd be writing into the art department looking for a job. So, uh, first of all, it says that applicants are required to have a degree in architectural engineering, um, as if Gibbons himself had one, you know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah very much paint him as a trailblazer. It says that he's the first person to bring modern architecture to the screen so he was kind of a, a master of self-invention like the mgm mgm promo material made out that he had private tutors growing up that he traveled through europe and um, you know studying art and costume which was which is very much not the case he built his own legend he built his own he, he basically told all these people that he was going through Europe and studying Roman and Greek forms and all that sort of stuff, did he? Yeah. Oh, that's, I mean, we've all padded our CV, but that's properly <laughs> impressive, isn't it? I know, it's a little more difficult to fact check uh, before the days of Google, I suppose. Yeah, that's true. But uh, isn't it true as well, though, that he wasn't responsible for the Art Deco movement in architecture, but he certainly brought it to the film sets and and therefore kind of popularized it a little bit more because th that whole Art Deco movement came from Hollywood. Yeah, he was, I suppose, the first to really bring that to screen. Um, and, you know, 1925, you had this exposition in Paris that is seen as kind of launching the, the Art Deco movement. Um, I don't believe Gibbons was at that, but yeah, he would have been one of the first to, to popularize those kind of very bold designs in the States. And I mean, it, like, say, one of the early films where he does that is this film at Grand Hotel, which is just completely like it's a complete picture of luxury and decadence and came out in 1932, you know, as the height of the Great Depression in America. So you can imagine why it appealed to cinema goers at the time, this this kind of dream world that they could escape to. You know, I think that was a big part of MGM's commercial success at that at that point in time. 
And given that we are claiming him as Irish, you know, wherever he was born and wherever his dad was born or whatever, I mean, as Neil says, he qualified to play under the granny rule, so he's definitely Irish. But, like, I mean, we don't have anybody as successful as as him. I, I mentioned Daniel Day-Lewis in part one. He's won three Oscars. Like, Cedric Gibbons has won 11 Oscars. I mean, as you said, is he the second most decorated person ever in Oscar history? That's right, yeah. Second after uh, Walt Disney, who I believe won 2022. 20, yeah. And then... So yeah, I mean it's it's interesting that um obviously he's a bit more removed to Irishness than some of the you know people like Maureen O'Sullivan, Maureen O'Hara. But yeah, uh, we it's interesting that we we haven't in any way I suppose acknowledged him as as a son of Ireland. That changes today. <laughs> Did he acknowledge himself? Well, yeah, he he does list himself as Irish on on later records, but it's not something he ever really discusses. He doesn't quite acknowledge his Irishness. Which is, I suppose, you know, if you think of, say, like Maureen O'Sullivan, who's in, you know, his Tarzan film that he directed, you know, she comes back to boil in the 1980s and, you know, the local mm. police is leading a, a parade through the, the town in, in honour of her. But, yeah, Gibbons didn't identify himself publicly in, as Irish in the same way. I think he's interesting in that way because, you know, Irish Americans so often do cling on to their to their heritage and identity and yeah. um it wasn't how he wanted to frame himself. So was he worked on those films with uh, Maureen and Johnny Weismuller at the time who would have been Tarzan, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, 19 uh, 1932. So that was yeah, his sole directing credit as I said, but he actually was moved off um the picture at at one point, yeah, you can you can watch it online now. It's 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 pretty risque. Um, in in some parts, it came out, um, just before um censorship legislation started to be properly enforced. Oh, yeah. Um, and even then, like there was a nude swimming scene that had to be cut before it was taken out before it was released. Uh, Gibbons's wife had 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 a nude swimming scene one for earlier films, and it's it's believed that that could have potentially been a uh, part of the inspiration Ongawa indeed Ongawa I believe uh, <laughs> we're going to do an episode on Johnny Weissmuller at some point Dave He's yeah let's character. do it well I think today we will begin the claiming of Cedric Gibbons whether he wants to or not <laughs> we will claim him <laughs> as a son of Ireland and we're very proud of him and everything he's achieved and uh, Catherine Healy uh, the historian in residence in Epic in Dublin thank you so much for taking us through his life today thanks Catherine it's been a pleasure thanks guys Okay, welcome back to Why Would You Tell Me That? Neil, what did you think of Mr. Cedric Gibbons? I can't believe I had never heard of the man who has won 11 Oscars. And uh, he's one of ours. Well, he's as Irish as some of the football players, as you mentioned, in the 90s, I think. But uh, look, if Diane DeLewis is one of ours, he's one of ours as well. (laughs) No, that's, that's, that's amazing. Actually, and it ties into what I'm going to tell you next week. Oh, well, you said that the Oscar statue was based on a knight, right? That's right, yeah, a knight of the Crusades. Yeah, we're going to be talking around that roughly, but let me pitch it to you this way. I'm going to explain to you how an ATM that would be 800 years old would work. <laughs> uh, badly, I would suggest. <laughs> or exceptionally well. Crazy like a fox. <laughs> right 800 year old ATM I look forward to that next week in the meantime we should tell you to go and follow everything why would you tell me that we're at why would you tell me that on Instagram he's at Neil Delmar Comedy I'm at Dave Today FM and don't forget 
Dermot Gavin is our special guest for our live episode in Smock Alley on the 4th of April. Tickets are going really fast. We're so happy that everyone's buying them, but you've got to go get your hands on the tickets now. They're in the show notes of this episode. Anywhere you find information about us, any of those Instagram addresses, you'll see the link in bio job and go and get your tickets for Why Would You Tell Me That Live, 4th of April, Smock Alley in Dublin. Bye. In manufacturing, you need to automate intelligently to compete effectively. But not all automation solutions are created equally. AGVs and AMRs driven by Bluebotics Ant technology offer robust, accurate performance and native interoperability. Because your material handling can be smarter. Visit antdriven.com. That's antdriven.com to learn more.